First Epilogue, Chapter 8 of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter 8 One matter connected with his management sometimes worried Nicholas, and that was his quick temper together with his old hussar habit of making free use of his fists. At first he saw nothing reprehensible in this, but in the second year of his marriage his view of that form of punishment suddenly changed. Once in the summer he had sent for the village elder from Bogacharovo, a man who had succeeded to the post when Drawn died and who was accused of dishonesty and various irregularities. Nicholas went out into the porch to question him, and immediately after the elder had given a few replies the sound of cries and blows were heard. On returning to lunch Nicholas went up to his wife, who sat with her head bent low over her embroidery frame, and as usual began to tell her what he had been doing that morning. Among other things he spoke of the Bogacharovo elder. Countess Mary turned red and then pale, but continued to sit with head bowed and lips compressed and gave her husband no reply. "'Such an insolent scoundrel!' he cried, growing hot again at the mere recollection of him. If he had told me he was drunk and did not see— But what is the matter with you, Mary? he suddenly asked. Countess Mary raised her head and tried to speak, but hastily looked down again and her lips puckered. Why, whatever is the matter, my dearest? The looks of the plain Countess Mary always improved when she was in tears. She never cried from pain or vexation, but always from sorrow or pity and when she wept her radiant eyes acquired an irresistible charm. The moment Nicholas took her hand she could no longer restrain herself and began to cry. "'Nicholas, I saw it. He was to blame. But why did you—' "'Nicholas!' And she covered her face with her hands. Nicholas said nothing. He flushed crimson, left her side, and paced up and down the room. He understood what she was weeping about, but could not in his heart at once agree with her that what he had regarded from childhood as quite an everyday event was wrong. "'Is it just sentimentality, old wives' tales, or is she right?' he asked himself. Before he had solved that point, he glanced again at her face filled with love and pain, and he suddenly realized that she was right, and that he had long been sinning against himself. "'Mary,' he said softly, going up to her, "'it will never happen again. I give you my word. Never,' he repeated in a trembling voice like a boy asking for forgiveness. The tears flowed faster still from the Countess's eyes. She took his hand and kissed it. "'Nicholas, when did you break your cameo?' she asked to change the subject looking at his finger on which he wore a ring with a cameo of Lacohen's head. Today it was the same affair. Oh, Mary, don't remind me of it! And again he flushed. I give you my word of honor, it shan't occur again. And let this always be a reminder to me. And he pointed to the broken ring. After that, when, in discussions with his village elders or stewards, the blood rushed to his face and his fists began to clench, Nicholas would turn the broken ring on his finger and would drop his eyes before the man who was making him angry. 
but he did forget himself once or twice within a twelvemonth, and then he would go and confess to his wife, and would again promise that this should really be the very last time. "'Mary, you must despise me,' he would say. "'I deserve it.' "'You should go. Go away at once, if you don't feel strong enough to control yourself,' she would reply sadly, trying to comfort her husband. Among the gentry of the province, Nicholas was respected but not liked. He did not concern himself with the interests of his own class, and consequently some thought him proud and others thought him stupid. The whole summer, from spring sowing to harvest, he was busy with the work on his farm. In autumn he gave himself up to hunting with some business-like seriousness, leaving home for a month or even two with his hunt. In winter he visited his other villages or spent his time reading. The books he read were chiefly historical, and on these he spent a certain sum every year. He was collecting, as he said, a serious library, and he made it a rule to read through all the books he bought. He would sit in his study with a grave air, reading, a task he first imposed upon himself as a duty, but which afterwards became a habit affording him a special kind of pleasure and a consciousness of being occupied with serious matters. In winter, except for business excursions, he spent most of his time at home making himself one with his family and entering into all the details of his children's relations with their mother. The harmony between him and his wife grew closer and closer, and he daily discovered fresh spiritual treasures in her. From the time of his marriage Sonia had lived in his house. Before that Nicholas had told his wife all that had passed between himself and Sonia, blaming himself and commending her. He had asked Princess Mary to be gentle and kind to his cousin. She thoroughly realized the wrong he had done Sonia, felt herself to blame toward her, and imagined that her wealth had influenced Nicholas' choice. She could not find fault with Sonia in any way and tried to be fond of her, but often felt ill-will toward her which she could not overcome. Once she had a talk with her friend Natasha about Sonia and about her own injustice toward her. "'You know,' said Natasha, "'you have read the Gospels a great deal. There is a passage in them that just fits Sonia.' "'What?' asked Countess Mary, surprised. "'To him that hath shall be given.' and from him that hath shall not be taken away. You remember? She is the one that hath not. Why, I don't know. Perhaps she lacks egotism, I don't know, but from her is taken away, and everything has been taken away. Sometimes I am dreadfully sorry for her. Formerly I very much wanted Nicholas to marry her, but I always had a sort of presentiment that it would not come off. She is a sterile flower, you know, like some strawberry blossoms. Sometimes I am sorry for her, and sometimes I think she doesn't feel it as you or I would." Though Countess Mary told Natasha that those words in the Gospel must be understood differently, yet looking at Sonia she agreed with Natasha's explanation. It really seemed that Sonia did not feel her position trying, and had grown quite reconciled to her lot as a sterile flower. She seemed to be fond not so much of individuals as of the family as a whole. Like a cat she had attached herself not to the people but to the home. 
She waited on the old countess, petted and spoiled the children, was always ready to render the small services for which she had a gift, and all this was unconsciously accepted from her with insufficient gratitude. The country seat at Bald Hills had been rebuilt, though not on the same scale as under the old prince. The buildings, begun under straitened circumstances, were more than simple. The immense house on the old stone foundations was of wood plastered only inside. It had bare deal floors and was furnished with very simple hard sofas, armchairs, tables, and chairs, made by their own serf carpenters out of their own birchwood. The house was spacious and had rooms for the house serfs and apartments for visitors. Whole families of the Rostovs and Bolkonsky's relations sometimes came to Bald Hills with sixteen horses and dozens of servants and stayed for months. Besides that, four times a year, on the name-days and birthdays of the hosts, as many as a hundred visitors would gather there for a day or two. The rest of the year life pursued its unbroken routine with its ordinary occupations, and its breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and suppers provided out of the produce of the estate. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 8First Epilogue, Chapter 9 Of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter 9 It was the eve of St. Nicholas, the 5th of December, 1820. Natasha had been staying at her brother's with her husband and children since early autumn. Pierre had gone to Petersburg on business of his own for three weeks, as he said, but had remained there nearly seven weeks and was expected back every minute. Besides the Bazukov family, Nicholas' old friend, the retired General Vasily Dmitrich Denisov, was staying with the Rostovs this 5th of December. On the 6th, which was his name-day, when the house would be full of visitors, Nicholas knew he would have to exchange his tartar tunic for a tailcoat and put on narrow boots with pointed toes, and drive to the new church he had built, and then receive visitors who would come to congratulate him, offer them refreshments, and talk about the elections of the nobility. But he considered himself entitled to spend the eve of that day in his usual way. He examined the bailiff's accounts of the village in Riazan, which belonged to his wife's nephew wrote two business letters, and walked over to the granaries, cattle-yards and stables before dinner. Having taken precautions against the general drunkenness to be expected on the morrow because it was a great saint's day, he returned to dinner, and without having time for a private talk with his wife, sat down at the long table late for twenty persons, at which the whole household had assembled. At that table were his mother, his mother's old lady companion Belova, his wife, their three children with their governess and tutor, his wife's nephew with his tutor, Sonia, Denisov, Natasha, her three children, their governess, and old Michael Ivanovitch, the late prince's architect, who was living on in retirement at Bald Hills. Countess Mary sat at the other end of the table. When her husband took his place, she concluded, from the rapid manner in which, after taking up his table-napkin, he pushed back the tumbler and wine-glass standing before him, that he was out of humour, as was sometimes the case when he came in to dinner straight from the farm, especially before the soup. Countess Mary well knew that mood of his, and when she herself was in a good frame of mind, 
quietly waited till he had had his soup, and then began to talk to him and make him admit that there was no cause for his ill-humour. But today she quite forgot that, and was hurt that he should be angry with her without any reason, and she felt unhappy. She asked him where he had been. He replied. She again inquired whether everything was going well on the farm. Her unnatural tone made him wince unpleasantly, and he replied hastily. Then I'm not mistaken, thought Countess Mary. Why is he cross with me? She concluded from his tone that he was vexed with her, and wished to end the conversation. She knew her remarks sounded unnatural, but could not refrain from asking some more questions. Thanks to Denisov the conversation at table soon became general and lively, and she did not talk to her husband. When they left the table and went as usual to thank the old countess, Countess Mary held out her hand and kissed her husband, and asked him why he was angry with her. "'You always have such strange fancies. I didn't even think of being angry,' he replied. But the word always seemed to her to imply, "'Yes, I am angry, but I won't tell you why.' Nicholas and his wife lived together so happily that even Sonia and the old countess, who felt jealous and would have liked them to disagree, could find nothing to reproach them with. But even they had their moments of antagonism. Occasionally, and it was always just after they had been happiest together, they suddenly had a feeling of estrangement and hostility, which occurred most frequently during Countess Mary's pregnancies, and this was such a time. "'Well, messieurs and madame,' said Nicholas loudly, and with apparent cheerfulness, it seemed to Countess Mary that he did it on purpose to vex her. I have been on my feet since six this morning. Tomorrow I shall have to suffer, so today I'll go and rest." And without a word to his wife he went to the little sitting-room and lay down on the sofa. "'That's always the way,' thought Countess Mary. "'He talks to everyone except me. I see. I see that I am repulsive to him, especially when I am in this condition. She looked down at her expanded figure, and in the glass at her pale, sallow, emaciated face in which her eyes now looked larger than ever. And everything annoyed her. Denisov's shouting and laughter, Natasha's talk, and especially a quick glance Sonia gave her. Sonia was always the first excuse Countess Mary found for feeling irritated. Having sat a while with her visitors without understanding anything of what they were saying, she softly left the room and went to the nursery. The children were playing at going to Moscow in a carriage made of chairs, and invited her to go with them. She sat down and played with them a little, but the thought of her husband and his unreasonable crossness worried her. She got up and walking on tiptoe with difficulty went to the small sitting-room. "'Perhaps he is not asleep. I'll have an explanation with him,' she said to herself. Little Andrew, her eldest boy, imitating his mother, followed her on tiptoe. She did not notice him. "'Mary, dear, I think he is asleep. He was so tired,' said Sonia, meeting her in the large sitting-room. It seemed to Countess Mary that she crossed her path everywhere. "'Andrew may wake him.' Countess Mary looked round, saw little Andrew following her, felt that Sonia was right and for that very reason flushed and with evident difficulty refrained from saying something harsh. She made no reply, 
but to avoid obeying Sonia beckoned to Andrew to follow her quietly and went to the door. Sonia went away by another door. From the room in which Nicholas was sleeping came the sound of his even breathing, every slightest tone of which was familiar to his wife. As she listened to it, she saw before her his smooth, handsome forehead, his moustache, and his whole face, as she had so often seen it in the stillness of the night when he slept. Nicholas suddenly moved and cleared his throat. And at that moment little Andrew shouted from outside the door, "'Papa! Mama's standing here!' Countess Mary turned pale with fright and made signs to the boy. He grew silent, and quiet ensued for a moment, terrible to Countess Mary. She knew how Nicholas disliked being waked. Then through the door she heard Nicholas clearing his throat again and stirring, and his voice said crossly, "'I can't get a moment's peace. Mary, is that you? Why did you bring him here?' "'I only came in to look and did not notice. Forgive me.' Nicholas coughed and said no more. Countess Mary moved away from the door and took the boy back to the nursery. Five minutes later little black-eyed three-year-old Natasha, her father's pet, having learned from her brother that Papa was asleep and Mama was in the sitting-room, ran to her father unobserved by her mother. The dark-eyed little girl boldly opened the creaking door, went up to the sofa with energetic steps of her sturdy little legs, and having examined the position of her father, who was asleep with his back to her, rose on tiptoe and kissed the hand which lay under his head. Nicholas turned with a tender smile on his face. "'Natasha! Natasha!' came Countess Mary's frightened whisper from the door. "'Papa wants to sleep.' "'No, Mama, he doesn't want to sleep,' said little Natasha, with conviction. "'He's laughing.' Nicholas lowered his legs, rose, and took his daughter in his arms. "'Come in, Mary,' he said to his wife. She went in and sat down by her husband. "'I did not notice him following me,' she said timidly. "'I just looked in.' Holding his little girl with one arm, Nicholas glanced at his wife, and seeing her guilty expression, put his other arm around her and kissed her hair. "'May I kiss Mama?" he asked Natasha. Natasha smiled bashfully. "'Again,' she commanded pointing with a peremptory gesture to the spot where Nicholas had placed the kiss. "'I don't know why you think I am cross,' said Nicholas, replying to the question he knew was in his wife's mind. "'You have no idea how unhappy, how lonely I feel when you are like that. It always seems to me—' "'Mary, don't talk nonsense. You ought to be ashamed of yourself,' he said gaily. It seems to be that you can't love me, that I am so plain, always, and now, in this con—oh, how absurd you are! It is not beauty that endears, it's love that makes us see beauty. It is only Malvinas and women of that kind who are loved for their beauty. But do I love my wife? I don't love her, but—I don't know how to put it. Without you, or when something comes between us like this, I seem lost and can't do anything. Now do I love my finger? I don't love it, but just try to cut it off. I am not like that myself, but I understand. So you're not angry with me?" "'Awfully angry,' he said, smiling and getting up. 
and smoothing his hair, he began to pace the room. "'Do you know, Mary, what I've been thinking?' He began, immediately thinking aloud in his wife's presence, now that they had made it up. He did not ask if she was ready to listen to him. He did not care. A thought had occurred to him, and so it belonged to her also. He told her of his intention to persuade Pierre to stay with them till spring. Countess Mary listened till he had finished, made some remark, and in her turn began thinking aloud. Her thoughts were about the children. "'You can see the woman in her already,' she said in French, pointing to little Natasha. "'You reproach us women with being illogical. Here is our logic. I say, Papa wants to sleep, but she says, no, he's laughing. And she was right.' said Countess Mary, with a happy smile. "'Yes, yes.' And Nicholas, taking his little daughter in his strong hand, lifted her high, placed her on his shoulder, held her by the legs, and paced the room with her. There was an expression of carefree happiness on the faces of both father and daughter. "'But, you know, you may be unfair. You are too fond of this one,' his wife whispered in French. "'Yes, but what am I to do?' I try not to show." At that moment they heard the sound of the door-pulley and footsteps in the hall and anteroom as if someone had arrived. "'Somebody has come.' "'I am sure it is Pierre. I will go and see,' said Countess Mary, and left the room. In her absence Nicholas allowed himself to give his little daughter a gallop round the room. Out of breath he took the laughing child quickly from his shoulder and pressed her to his heart. His capers reminded him of dancing, and looking at the child's round happy little face, he thought of what she would be like when he was an old man, taking her into society and dancing the mazurka with her, as his old father had danced Daniel Cooper with his daughter. "'It is he! It is he, Nicholas!' said Countess Mary, re-entering the room a few minutes later. "'Now our Natasha has come to life. You should have seen her ecstasy and how he caught it for having stayed away so long. Well, come along now, quick, quick. It's time you two are parted," she added, looking smilingly at the little girl who clung to her father. Nicholas went out holding the child by the hand. Countess Mary remained in the sitting-room. "'I should never, never have believed that one could be so happy,' she whispered to herself. A smile lit up her face, but at the same time she sighed and her deep eyes expressed a quiet sadness as though she felt, through her happiness, that there is another sort of happiness unattainable in this life, and of which she involuntarily thought at that instant. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 9《First Epilogue, Chapter 10, of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter Ten. Natasha had married in the early spring of 1813, and in 1820 already had three daughters besides a son for whom she had longed and whom she was now nursing. She had grown stouter and broader so that it was difficult to recognize in this robust, motherly woman the slim, lively Natasha of former days. Her features were more defined and had a calm, soft, and serene expression. 
In her face there was none of the ever-glowing animation that had formerly burned there and constituted its charm. Now her face and body were often all that one saw, and her soul was not visible at all. All that struck the eye was a strong, handsome, and fertile woman. The old fire very rarely kindled in her face now. That happened only when, as was the case that day, her husband returned home, or a sick child was convalescent, or when she and Countess Mary spoke of Prince Andrew. She never mentioned him to her husband, who, she imagined, was jealous of Prince Andrew's memory, or on the rare occasions when something happened to induce her to sing, a practice she had quite abandoned since her marriage. At the rare moments when the old fire did kindle in her handsome, fully developed body, she was even more attractive than in former days. Since their marriage, Natasha and her husband had lived in Moscow, in Petersburg, on their estate near Moscow, or with her mother, that is to say, in Nicholas' house. The young Countess Bezukhova was not often seen in society, and those who met her there were not pleased with her, and found her neither attractive nor amiable. Not that Natasha liked solitude. She did not know whether she liked it or not. She even thought that she did not. But with her pregnancies, her confinements, the nursing of her children, and sharing every moment of her husband's life, she had demands on her time which could be satisfied only by renouncing society. All who had known Natasha before her marriage wondered at the change in her as at something extraordinary. Only the old countess with her maternal instinct had realized that all Natasha's outbursts had been due to her need of children and a husband, as she herself had once exclaimed at a trodno, not so much in fun as in earnest. And her mother was now surprised at the surprise expressed by those who had never understood Natasha, and she kept saying that she had always known that Natasha would make an exemplary wife and mother. "'Only she lets her love of her husband and children overflow all bounds,' said the countess so that it even becomes absurd." Natasha did not follow the golden rule advocated by clever folk, especially by the French, which says that a girl should not let herself go when she marries, should not neglect her accomplishments, should be even more careful of her appearance than when she was unmarried, and should fascinate her husband as much as she did before he became her husband. Natasha, on the contrary, had at once abandoned all her witchery, of which her singing had been an unusually powerful part. She gave it up just because it was so powerfully seductive. She took no pains with her manners, or with delicacy of speech, or with her toilette, or to show herself to her husband in her most becoming attitudes, or to avoid inconveniencing him by being too exacting. She acted in contradiction to all those rules. She felt that the allurements instinct had formerly taught her to use would now be merely ridiculous in the eyes of her husband, to whom she had from the first moment given herself up entirely, that is, with her whole soul, leaving no corner of it hidden from him. She felt that her unity with her husband was not maintained by the poetic feelings that had attracted him to her, but by something else, indefinite but firm as the bond between her own body and soul to fluff out her curls, put on fashionable dresses, and sing romantic songs to fascinate her husband, would have seemed as strange as to adorn herself to attract herself. To adorn herself for others might perhaps have been agreeable, she did not know, but she had no time at all for it. 
the chief reason for devoting no time either to singing, to dress, or to choosing her words was that she really had no time to spare for these things. We know that man has the faculty of becoming completely absorbed in a subject, however trivial it may be, and that there is no subject so trivial that it will not grow to infinite proportions if one's entire attention is devoted to it. The subject which wholly engrossed Natasha's attention was her family that is, her husband, whom she had to keep so that he should belong entirely to her and to the home, and the children, whom she had to bear, bring into the world, nurse and bring up. And the deeper she penetrated, not with her mind only, but with her whole soul, her whole being, into the subject that absorbed her, the larger did that subject grow, and the weaker and more inadequate did her powers appear, so that she concentrated them wholly on that one thing and yet was unable to accomplish all that she considered necessary. There were then, as now, conversations and discussions about women's rights, the relations of husband and wife, and their freedom and rights, though these themes were not yet termed questions as they are now. But these topics were not merely uninteresting to Natasha, she positively did not understand them. These questions, then as now, existed only for those who see nothing in marriage but the pleasure married people get from one another, that is, only the beginnings of marriage and not its whole significance which lies in the family. Discussions and questions of that kind, which are like the questions of how to get the greatest gratification from one's dinner, did not then and do not now exist for those for whom the purpose of a dinner is the nourishment it affords, and the purpose of marriage is the family. If the purpose of dinner is to nourish the body, a man who eats two dinners at once may perhaps get more enjoyment, but will not attain his purpose, for his stomach will not digest the two dinners. If the purpose of marriage is the family, the person who wishes to have many wives or husbands may perhaps obtain much pleasure, but in that case will not have a family. If the purpose of food is nourishment and the purpose of marriage is the family, the whole question resolves itself into not eating more than one can digest and not having more wives or husbands than are needed for the family, that is, one wife or one husband. Natasha needed a husband. A husband was given her and he gave her a family. And she not only saw no need of any other or better husband, but as all the powers of her soul were intent on serving that husband and family, she could not imagine and saw no interest in imagining how it would be if things were different. Natasha did not care for society in general, but prized the more the society of her relatives, Countess Mary, and her brother, her mother, and Sonia. She valued the company of those to whom she could come striding disheveled from the nursery in her dressing-gown and with joyful face show a yellow instead of a green stain on baby's napkin, and from whom she could hear reassuring words to the effect that baby was much better. To such an extent had Natasha let herself go, that the way she dressed and did her hair, her ill-chosen words and her jealousy—she was jealous of Sonia, of the governess, and of every woman, pretty or plain—were habitual subjects of jest to those about her. The general opinion was that Pierre was under his wife's thumb, which was really true. From the very first days of their married life, Natasha had announced her demands. Pierre was greatly surprised by his wife's view, 
to him a perfectly novel one, that every moment of his life belonged to her and to the family. His wife's demands astonished him, but they also flattered him, and he submitted to them. Pierre's subjection consisted in the fact that he not only dared not flirt with, but dared not even speak smilingly to any other woman, did not dare dine at the club as a pastime, did not dare spend money on a whim, and did not dare absent himself for any length of time except on business, in which his wife included his intellectual pursuits, which she did not in the least understand, but to which she attributed great importance. To make up for this, at home Pierre had the right to regulate his life and that of the whole family exactly as he chose. At home Natasha placed herself in the position of a slave to her husband, and the whole household went on tiptoe when he was occupied, that is, was reading or writing in his study. Pierre had but to show a partiality for anything to get just what he liked done always. He had only to express a wish and Natasha would jump up and run to fulfill it. The entire household was governed according to Pierre's supposed orders, that is, by his wishes which Natasha tried to guess. Their way of life and place of residence, their acquaintances and ties, Natasha's occupations, the children's upbringing, were all selected not merely with regard to Pierre's expressed wishes, but to what Natasha, from the thoughts he expressed in conversation, supposed his wishes to be. And she deduced the essentials of his wishes quite correctly and having once arrived at them, clung to them tenaciously. When Pierre himself wanted to change his mind, she would fight him with his own weapons. Thus, in a time of trouble ever memorable to him after the birth of their first child who was delicate, when they had to change the wet nurse three times and Natasha fell ill from despair, Pierre one day told her of Rousseau's view, with which he quite agreed, that to have a wet nurse is unnatural and harmful. When her next baby was born, despite the opposition of her mother, the doctors, and even of her husband himself, who were all vigorously opposed to her nursing her baby herself, a thing then unheard of and considered injurious, she insisted on having her own way, and after that nursed all her babies herself. It very often happened that in a moment of irritation husband and wife would have a dispute, but long afterwards Pierre, to his surprise and delight, would find in his wife's ideas and actions the very thought against which she had argued, but divested of everything superfluous that in the excitement of the dispute he had added when expressing his opinion. After seven years of marriage, Pierre had the joyous and firm consciousness that he was not a bad man, and he felt this because he saw himself reflected in his wife. He felt that the good and bad within himself inextricably mingled and overlapping. But only what was really good in him was reflected in his wife, all that was not quite good was rejected. And this was not the result of logical reasoning but was a direct and mysterious reflection. End of First Epilogue Chapter 10First Epilogue, Chapter 11, of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter 11 Two months previously, when Pierre was already staying with the Rostovs, 
he had received a letter from Prince Theodore, asking him to come to Petersburg to confer on some important questions that were being discussed there by a society of which Pierre was one of the principal founders. On reading that letter, she always read her husband's letters, Natasha herself suggested that he should go to Petersburg, though she would feel his absence very acutely. She attributed immense importance to all her husband's intellectual and abstract interests, though she did not understand them, and she always dreaded being a hindrance to him in such matters. To Pierre's timid look of inquiry after reading the letter, she replied by asking him to go, but to fix a definite date for his return. He was given four weeks' leave of absence. Ever since that leave of absence had expired, more than a fortnight before, Natasha had been in a constant state of alarm, depression, and irritability. Denisov, now a general on the retired list and much dissatisfied with the present state of affairs, had arrived during that fortnight. He looked at Natasha with sorrow and surprise, as at a bad likeness of a person once dear. A dull, dejected look, random replies, and talk about the nursery was all he saw and heard from his former enchantress. Natasha was sad and irritable all that time, especially when her mother, her brother, Sonia, or Countess Mary, in their efforts to console her, tried to excuse Pierre and suggested reasons for his delay in returning. It's all nonsense, all rubbish, those discussions which lead to nothing and all those idiotic societies. Natasha declared of the very affairs in the immense importance of which she firmly believed. And she would go to the nursery to nurse Petya, her only boy. No one else could tell her anything so comforting or so reasonable as this little three-month-old creature when he lay at her breast, and she was conscious of the movement of his lips and the snuffling of his little nose. That creature said, "'You are angry. You are jealous. You would like to pay him out. You are afraid. But here am I, and I am he.' And that was unanswerable. It was more than true. During that fortnight of anxiety Natasha resorted to the baby for comfort so often, and fussed over him so much, that she overfed him and he fell ill. She was terrified by his illness and yet that was just what she needed. While attending to him, she bore the anxiety about her husband more easily. She was nursing her boy when the sound of Pierre's sleigh was heard at the front door, and the old nurse, knowing how to please her mistress, entered the room inaudibly but hurriedly and with a beaming face. "'Has he come?' Natasha asked quickly in a whisper, afraid to move lest she should rouse the dozing baby. "'He's come, ma'am.' whispered the nurse. The blood rushed to Natasha's face and her feet involuntarily moved, but she could not jump up and run out. The baby again opened his eyes and looked at her. "'You're here?' he seemed to be saying, and again lazily smacked his lips. Cautiously withdrawing her breast, Natasha rocked him a little, handed him to the nurse, and went with rapid steps toward the door. But at the door she stopped as if her conscience reproached her for having in her joy left the child too soon, and she glanced round. The nurse with raised elbows was lifting the infant over the rail of his cot. "'Go, ma'am, don't worry, go,' she whispered, smiling, with the kind of familiarity that grows up between a nurse and her mistress. Natasha ran with light footsteps to the anteroom. 
Denisov, who had come out of the study into the dancing-room with his pipe, now for the first time recognized the old Natasha. A flood of brilliant, joyful light poured from her transfigured face. "'He's come!' she exclaimed as she ran past, and Denisov felt that he too was delighted that Pierre, whom he did not much care for, had returned. On reaching the vestibule, Natasha saw a tall figure in a fur coat unwinding his scarf. "'It's he! It's really he! He has come!' she said to herself, and rushing at him, embraced him, pressed his head to her breast, and then pushed him back and gazed at his ruddy, happy face, covered with hoar-frost. "'Yes, it is he, happy and contented!' Then, all at once, she remembered the tortures of suspense she had experienced for the last fortnight, and the joy that had lit up her face vanished. She frowned and overwhelmed Pierre with a torrent of reproaches and angry words. "'Yes, it's all very well for you. You are pleased, you've had a good time. But what about me? You might at least have shown consideration for the children.' "'I am nursing, and my milk was spoiled. Petya was at death's door. But you were enjoying yourself. Yes, enjoying!' Pierre knew he was not to blame for he could not have come sooner. He knew this outburst was unseemly, and would blow over in a minute or two. Above all, he knew that he himself was bright and happy. He wanted to smile, but dared not even think of doing so. He made a piteous, frightened face, and bent down. "'I could not, on my honor. But how is Petya?' "'All right now. Come along. I wonder you're not ashamed. If only you could see what I was like without you, how I suffered!" "'You are well?' "'Come, come,' she said, not letting go of his arm. And they went to their rooms. When Nicholas and his wife came to look for Pierre, he was in the nursery holding his baby son, who was again awake, on his huge right palm and dandling him. A blissful bright smile was fixed on the baby's broad face with its toothless open mouth. The storm was long since over, and there was bright, joyous sunshine on Natasha's face as she gazed tenderly at her husband and child. "'And have you talked everything well over with Prince Theodore?' she asked. "'Yes, capitally.' "'You see, he holds it up.' She met the baby's head. "'But how he did frighten me! You've seen the princess? Is it true she's in love with that—' Yes, just fancy." At that moment Nicholas and Countess Mary came in. Pierre with the baby on his hand stooped, kissed them, and replied to their inquiries. But in spite of much that was interesting and had to be discussed, the baby with the little cap on its unsteady head evidently absorbed all his attention. "'How sweet!' said Countess Mary, looking at and playing with the baby. Now, Nicholas she added, turning to her husband, "'I can't understand how it is you don't see the charm of these delicious marvels.' "'I don't and can't,' replied Nicholas, looking coldly at the baby. "'A lump of flesh. Come along, Pierre.' "'And yet he's such an affectionate father,' said Countess Mary, vindicating her husband. "'But only after they are a year old or so.' "'Now Pierre nurses them splendidly.' said Natasha. 
He says his hand is just made for a baby's seat. Just look. Only not for this. Pierre suddenly exclaimed with a laugh, and shifting the baby, he gave him to the nurse. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 11First Epilogue, Chapter Twelve, of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter Twelve. As in every large household, there were at Bald Hills several perfectly distinct worlds which merged into one harmonious whole though each retained its own peculiarities and made concessions to the others. Every event, joyful or sad, that took place in that house was important to all these worlds, but each had its own special reasons to rejoice or grieve over that occurrence independently of the others. For instance, Pierre's return was a joyful and important event and they all felt it to be so. The servants, the most reliable judges of their masters because they judge not by their conversation or expressions of feeling, but by their acts and way of life, were glad of Pierre's return because they knew that when he was there Count Nicholas would cease going every day to attend to the estate, and would be in better spirits and temper, and also because they would all receive handsome presents for the holidays. The children and their governesses were glad of Pierre's return because no one else drew them into the social life of the household as he did. He alone could play on the clavichord that Ecossais, his only piece, to which, as he said, all possible dances could be danced, and they felt sure he had brought presents for them all. Young Nicholas, now a slim lad of fifteen, delicate and intelligent, with curly light-brown hair and beautiful eyes, was delighted because Uncle Pierre, as he called him, was the object of his rapturous and passionate affection. No one had instilled into him this love for Pierre, whom he saw only occasionally. Countess Mary, who had brought him up, had done her utmost to make him love her husband as she loved him, and little Nicholas did love his uncle, but loved him with just a shade of contempt. Pierre, however, he adored. He did not want to be a hussar or a knight of St. George like his uncle Nicholas. He wanted to be learned, wise and kind like Pierre. In Pierre's presence his face always shone with pleasure, and he flushed and was breathless when Pierre spoke to him. He did not miss a single word he uttered, and would afterwards, with de Salle or by himself, recall and reconsider the meaning of everything Pierre had said. Pierre's past life and his unhappiness prior to 1812, of which young Nicholas had formed a vague poetic picture from some words he had overheard, his adventures in Moscow, his captivity, Platon Karateyev, of whom he had heard from Pierre, his love for Natasha, of whom the lad was also particularly fond, and especially Pierre's friendship with the father whom Nicholas could not remember, all this made Pierre in his eyes a hero and a saint. From broken remarks about Natasha and his father, from the emotion with which Pierre spoke of that dead father, and from the careful, reverent tenderness with which Natasha spoke of him, the boy, who was only just beginning to guess what love is, derived the notion that his father had loved Natasha, 
and when dying had left her to his friend. But the father, whom the boy did not remember, appeared to him a divinity who could not be pictured, and of whom he never thought without a swelling heart and tears of sadness and rapture. So the boy also was happy that Pierre had arrived. The guests welcomed Pierre because he always helped to enliven and unite any company he was in. The grown-up members of the family, not to mention his wife, were pleased to have back a friend whose presence made life run more smoothly and peacefully. The old ladies were pleased with the presents he brought them, and especially that Natasha would now be herself again. Pierre felt the different outlooks of these various worlds, and made haste to satisfy all their expectations. Though the most absent-minded and forgetful of men, Pierre, with the aid of a list his wife drew up, had now bought everything, not forgetting his mother, and brother-in-law's commissions, nor the dress material for a present to Belova, nor toys for his wife's nephews. In the early days of his marriage, it had seemed strange to him that his wife should expect him not to forget to procure all the things he undertook to buy, and he had been taken aback by her serious annoyance when on his first trip he forgot everything. But in time he grew used to this demand, knowing that Natasha asked nothing for herself and gave him commissions for others only when he himself had offered to undertake them, he now found an unexpected and childlike pleasure in this purchase of presents for everyone in the house, and never forgot anything. If he now incurred Natasha's censure, it was only for buying too many and too expensive things. To her other defects, as most people thought them, but which to Pierre were qualities, of untidiness and neglect of herself, she now added stinginess. From the time that Pierre began life as a family man on a footing entailing heavy expenditure, he had noticed to his surprise that he spent only half as much as before, and that his affairs, which had been in disorder of late chiefly because of his first wife's debts, had begun to improve. Life was cheaper because it was circumscribed. That most expensive luxury, the kind of life that can be changed at any moment, was no longer his, nor did he wish for it. He felt that his way of life had now been settled once for all till death, and that to change it was not in his power, and so that way of life proved economical. With a merry smiling face, Pierre was sorting his purchases. "'What do you think of this?' said he, unrolling a piece of stuff like a shopman. Natasha, who was sitting opposite to him with her eldest daughter on her lap, turned her sparkling eyes swiftly from her husband to the things he showed her. "'That's for Belova? Excellent!' She felt the quality of the material. "'It was a rouble and arshin, I suppose.' Pierre told her the price. "'Too dear!' Natasha remarked. "'How pleased the children will be, and Mama too! "'Only you need not have bought me this.' she added, unable to suppress a smile as she gazed admiringly at a gold comb set with pearls, of a kind then just coming into fashion. "'Adele tempted me. She kept on telling me to buy it,' returned Pierre. "'When am I to wear it?' and Natasha stuck it in her coil of hair. "'When I take little Masha into society? Perhaps they will be fashionable again by then. Well, let's go now.' 
and collecting the presents they went first to the nursery and then to the old countess's rooms. The countess was sitting with her companion, Belova, playing grand patience as usual, when Pierre and Natasha came into the drawing-room with parcels under their arms. The countess was now over sixty, was quite grey, and wore a cap with a frill that surrounded her face. Her face had shriveled, her upper lip had sunk in, and her eyes were dim. After the deaths of her son and husband in such rapid succession, she felt herself a being accidentally forgotten in this world, and left without aim or object for her existence. She ate, drank, slept, or kept awake, but did not live. Life gave her no new impressions. She wanted nothing from life but tranquillity, and that tranquillity only death could give her. But until death came she had to go on living, that is, to use her vital forces. A peculiarity one sees in very young children and very old people was particularly evident in her. Her life had no external aims, only a need to exercise her various functions and inclinations was apparent. She had to eat, sleep, think, speak, weep, work, give vent to her anger and so on, merely because she had a stomach, a brain, muscles, nerves, and a liver. She did these things not under any external impulse, as people in the full vigor of life do, when behind the purpose for which they strive that of exercising their functions remains unnoticed. She talked only because she physically needed to exercise her tongue and lungs. She cried as a child does, because her nose had to be cleared and so on. What for people in their full vigor is an aim was for her evidently merely a pretext. Thus in the morning, especially if she had eaten anything rich the day before, she felt a need of being angry, and would choose as the handiest pretext Belova's deafness. She would begin to say something to her in a low tone from the other end of the room. "'It seems a little warmer today, my dear,' she would murmur. And when Belova replied, "'Oh, yes, they've come,' she would mutter angrily, "'Oh, Lord, how stupid and deaf she is!' Another pretext would be her snuff, which would seem too dry or too damp or not rubbed fine enough. After these fits of irritability her face would grow yellow and her maids knew by infallible symptoms when Belova would again be deaf, the snuff damp, and the countess' face yellow. Just as she needed to work off her spleen, so she had sometimes to exercise her still-existing faculty of thinking, and the pretext for that was a game of patience. When she needed to cry, the deceased count would be the pretext. When she wanted to be agitated, Nicholas and his health would be the pretext and when she felt a need to speak spitefully, the pretext would be Countess Mary. When her vocal organs needed exercise, which was usually toward seven o'clock when she had had an after-dinner rest in a darkened room, the pretext would be the retelling of the same stories over and over again to the same audience. The old lady's condition was understood by the whole household, though no one ever spoke of it, and they all made every possible effort to satisfy her needs. Only by a rare glance exchanged with a sad smile between Nicholas, Pierre, Natasha, and Countess Mary was the common understanding of her condition expressed. But those glances expressed something more. They said that she had played her part in life, 
that what they now saw was not her whole self, that we must all become like her, and that they were glad to yield to her, to restrain themselves for this once precious being formerly as full of life as themselves, but now so much to be pitied. Memento mori, said these glances. Only the really heartless, the stupid ones of that household, and the little children failed to understand this and avoided her. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 12First Epilogue, Chapter 13, of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter 13 When Pierre and his wife entered the drawing-room, the Countess was one of her customary states in which she needed the mental exertion of playing patience, and so, though by force of habit she greeted him with the word she always used when Pierre or her son returned after an absence, "'High time, my dear, high time! We were all weary of waiting for you. Well, thank God!' and received her presence with another customary remark, "'It's not the gift that's precious, my dear, but that you give it to me, an old woman.' Yet it was evident that she was not pleased by Pierre's arrival at that moment when it diverted her attention from the unfinished game. She finished her game of patience, and only then examined the presents. They consisted of a box for cards, of splendid workmanship, a bright blue Sevres teacup with shepherdesses depicted on it and with a lid, and a gold snuff-box with the Count's portrait on the lid which Pierre had had done by a miniaturist in Petersburg. The Countess had long wished for such a box, but as she did not want to cry just then, she glanced indifferently at the portrait and gave her attention chiefly to the box for cards. "'Thank you, my dear. You have cheered me up,' said she as she always did. "'But, best of all, you have brought yourself back, for I never saw anything like it. You ought to give your wife a scolding. What are we to do with her?' She is like a mad woman when you are away. Doesn't see anything, doesn't remember anything." She went on repeating her usual phrases. "'Look, Anna Tibofievna,' she added to her companion, "'see what a box for cards my son has brought us!' Belova admired the presents, and was delighted with her dress material. Though Pierre, Natasha, Nicholas, Countess Mary, and Denisov had much to talk about that they could not discuss before the old countess, not that anything was hidden from her, but because she had dropped so far behindhand in many things that had they begun to converse in her presence, they would have had to answer inopportune questions and to repeat what they had already told her many times, that so-and-so was dead and so-and-so was married, which she would again be unable to remember. Yet they sat at tea round the samovar in the drawing-room from habit, and Pierre answered the countess's questions as to whether Prince Vasily had aged, and whether Countess Mary Alexeyevna had sent greetings, and still thought of them, and other matters that interested no one, and to which she herself was indifferent. Conversation of this kind, interesting to no one, yet unavoidable, continued all through tea-time. All the grown-up members of the family were assembled near the round tea-table at which Sonya presided beside the samovar. 
The children with their tutors and governesses had had tea and their voices were audible from the next room. At tea all sat in their accustomed places, Nicholas beside the stove at a small table where his tea was handed to him, Milka, the old grey Borzoi bitch, daughter of the first Milka, with a quite grey face and large black eyes that seemed more prominent than ever, lay on the armchair beside him. Denisov, whose curly hair, moustache and whiskers had turned half grey, sat beside the Countess Mary with his general's tunic unbuttoned. Pierre sat between his wife and the old Countess. He spoke of what he knew might interest the old lady, and that she could understand. He told her of external social events, and of the people who had formed the circle of her contemporaries, and had once been a real, living, and distinct group, but who were now for the most part scattered about the world and, like herself, were garnering the last ears of the harvest they had sown in earlier years. But to the old countess those contemporaries of hers seemed to be the only serious and real society. Natasha saw by Pierre's animation that his visit had been interesting, and that he had much to tell them, but dare not say it before the old countess. Denisov, not being a member of the family, did not understand Pierre's caution, and being, as a malcontent, much interested in what was occurring in Petersburg, kept urging Pierre to tell them about what had happened in the Semenov's regiment, then about Erechev, and then about the Bible Society. Once or twice Pierre was carried away and began to speak of these things, but Nicholas and Natasha always brought him back to the health of Prince Ivan and Countess Mary Alexeyevna. "'Well, and all this idiocy, Gosner and Tatawanova, Denisov asked, "'is that really still going on?' "'Going on?' Pierre exclaimed. "'Why, more than ever! The Bible Society is the whole government now!' "'What is that, mon cher ami?' asked the Countess, who had finished her tea and evidently needed a pretext for being angry after her meal. "'What are you saying about the government? I don't understand.' "'Well, you know, mamma,' Nicholas interposed, knowing how to translate things into his mother's language, "'Prince Alexander Golitsyn has founded a society, and in consequence has great influence, they say.' Arakcheyev and Golitsyn, incautiously remarked Pierre, are now the whole government. And what a government! They see treason everywhere and are afraid of everything. Well, and how is Prince Alexander to blame? He is a most estimable man. I used to meet him at Mary Antonovna's, said the Countess in an offended tone, and still more offended that they all remained silent, she went on. Nowadays everyone finds fault a gospel society. Well, and what harm is there in that?" And she rose, everybody else got up too, and with a severe expression sailed back to her table in the sitting-room. The melancholy silence that followed was broken by the sounds of the children's voices and laughter from the next room. Evidently some jolly excitement was going on there. "'Finished! Finished!' little Natasha's gleeful yell rose above them all. Pierre exchanged glances with Countess Mary and Nicholas, Natasha he never lost sight of, and smiled happily. "'That's delightful music,' said he. "'It means that Anna Makarovna has finished her stocking,' said Countess Mary. "'Oh, I'll go and see,' said Pierre, jumping up. 
You know," he added, stopping at the door, "'why I'm especially fond of that music. It is always the first thing that tells me all is well. When I was driving here today, the nearer I got to the house, the more anxious I grew. As I entered the anteroom, I heard Andrusha's peals of laughter, and that meant all was well. I know, I know that feeling," said Nicholas. But I mustn't go there. Those stockings are to be a surprise for me." Pierre went to the children, and the shouting and laughter grew still louder. "'Come, Anna Makarovna,' Pierre's voice was heard saying. "'Come here into the middle of the room, and at the word of command, one, two, and when I say three, you stand here, and you in my arms. Well, now, one, two, said Pierre, and a silence followed. Three, and a rapturously breathless cry of children's voices filled the room. Two, two, they shouted. This meant two stockings, which, by a secret process known only to herself, Anna Makarovna used to knit at the same time on the same needles, and which, when they were ready, she always triumphantly drew one out of the other in the children's presence. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 13First Epilogue, Chapter 14, of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter 14 Soon after this, the children came in to say good-night. They kissed everyone, the tutors and governesses made their bows, and they went out. Only young Nicholas and his tutor remained. De Salle whispered to the boy to come downstairs. "'No, Monsieur de Salle, I will ask my aunt to let me stay,' replied Nicholas Bolkonsky, also in a whisper. "'Ma tante, please let me stay,' said he, going up to his aunt. His face expressed entreaty, agitation, and ecstasy. Countess Mary glanced at him and turned to Pierre. "'When you are here he can't tear himself away,' she said. I will bring him to you directly, Monsieur de Salle. Good night, said Pierre, giving his hand to the Swiss tutor, and he turned to young Nicholas with a smile. You and I haven't seen anything of one another yet. How like he is growing, Mary, he added, addressing Countess Mary. Like my father? asked the boy, flushing crimson and looking up at Pierre with bright, ecstatic eyes. Pierre nodded and went on with what he had been saying when the children had interrupted. Countess Mary sat down doing woolwork. Natasha did not take her eyes off her husband. Nicholas and Denisov rose, asked for their pipes, smoked, went to fetch more tea from Sonia, who sat weary but resolute at the samovar, and questioned Pierre. The curly-headed, delicate boy sat with shining eyes, unnoticed in a corner, starting every now and then and muttering something to himself and evidently experiencing a new and powerful emotion as he turned his curly head, with his thin neck exposed by his turned-down collar, toward the place where Pierre sat. The conversation turned on the contemporary gossip about those in power, in which most people see the chief interest of home politics. Denisov, dissatisfied with the government on account of his own disappointments in the service, heard with pleasure of the things done in Petersburg which seemed to him stupid 
and made forcible and sharp comments on what Pierre told them. One used to have to be a German. Now one must dance with Tatawanova and Madame Kudner and Weed Eckertshausen and the Bwethwin. Oh, they should let that fine fellow Bonaparte loose. He'd knock all this nonsense out of them. Fancy giving the command of the Semenov regiment to a fellow like that Schwartz!" he cried. Nicholas, though free from Denisov's readiness to find fault with everything, also thought that discussion of the government was a very serious and weighty matter, and the fact that A had been appointed minister of this, and B governor-general of that, and that the emperor had said so-and-so, and his minister so-and-so, seemed to him very important and so he thought it necessary to take an interest in these things and to question Pierre. The questions put by these two kept the conversation from changing its ordinary character of gossip about the higher government circles. But Natasha, knowing all her husband's ways and ideas, saw that he had long been wishing but had been unable to divert the conversation to another channel, and express his own deeply felt idea for the sake of which he had gone to Petersburg to consult with his new friend Prince Theodore, and she helped him by asking how his affairs with Prince Theodore had gone. "'What was it about?' asked Nicholas. "'Always the same thing,' said Pierre, looking round at his listeners. "'Everybody sees that things are going so badly that they cannot be allowed to go on so and that it is the duty of all decent men to counteract it as far as they can." "'What can decent men do?' Nicholas inquired, frowning slightly. "'What can be done?' "'Why, this—' "'Come into my study,' said Nicholas. Natasha, who had long expected to be fetched to nurse her baby, now heard the nurse calling her and went to the nursery. Countess Mary followed her. The men went into the study and little Nicholas Bolkonsky followed them, unnoticed by his uncle, and sat down at the writing-table in a shady corner by the window. "'Well, what would you do?' asked Denisov. "'Always some fantastic schemes,' said Nicholas. "'Why this?' began Pierre, not sitting down but pacing the room, sometimes stopping short, gesticulating and lisping. "'The position in Petersburg is this.' The Emperor does not look into anything. He has abandoned himself altogether to this mysticism." Pierre could not tolerate mysticism in anyone now. "'He seeks only for peace, and only these people, sans foi ni loi, without faith or law, can give it him. People who recklessly hack at and strangle everything—Magnitsky, Arakcheyev, and Tutiquanti. You will agree that, if you did not look after your estates yourself, but only wanted a quiet life, the harsher your steward was, the more readily your object might be attained," he said to Nicholas. "'Well, what does that lead up to?' said Nicholas. "'Well, everything is going to ruin. Robbery in the law courts, in the army nothing but flogging, drilling, and military settlements. The people are tortured, enlightenment is suppressed all that is young and honest is crushed. Everyone sees that this cannot go on. Everything is strained to such a degree that it will certainly break," said Pierre, as those who examine the actions of any government have always said since governments began. I told them just one thing in Petersburg. Told whom? Well, you know whom," said Pierre, with a meaning glance from under his brows. Prince Theodore and all those. 
to encourage culture and philanthropy is all very well, of course. The aim is excellent, but in the present circumstances something else is needed." At that moment Nicholas noticed the presence of his nephew. His face darkened and he went up to the boy. "'Why are you here?' "'Why, let him be,' said Pierre, taking Nicholas by the arm and continuing. "'That is not enough,' I told them. Something else is needed. When you stand expecting the overstrained string to snap at any moment, when everyone is expecting the inevitable catastrophe, as many as possible must join hands as closely as they can to withstand the general calamity. Everything that is young and strong is being enticed away and depraved. One is lured by women, another by honors, a third by ambition or money, and they go over to that camp. No independent men, such as you or I, are left. What I say is, widen the scope of our society, let the modordre be not virtue alone, but independence and action as well." Nicholas, who had left his nephew, irritably pushed up an armchair, sat down in it, and listened to Pierre, coughing discontentedly and frowning more and more. "'But action with what aim?' he cried. And what position will you adopt toward the government? Why, the position of assistance. The society need not be secret if the government allows it. Not merely is it not hostile to government, but it is a society of true conservatives, a society of gentlemen in the full meaning of that word. It is only to prevent some Pugachev or other from killing my children and yours, and Erechea from sending me off to some military settlement. We join hands only for the public welfare and the general safety." "'Yes, but it's a secret society, and therefore a hostile and harmful one which can only cause harm. Why? Did the Tugendbund which saved Europe—' They did not even venture to suggest that Russia had saved Europe—do any harm. The Tugendbund is an alliance of virtue. It is love, mutual help. It is what Christ preached on the cross." Natasha, who had come in during the conversation, looked joyfully at her husband. It was not what he was saying that pleased her. That did not even interest her, for it seemed to her that was all extremely simple and that she had known it for a long time. It seemed so to her because she knew that it sprang from Pierre's whole soul. But it was his animated and enthusiastic appearance that made her glad. The boy with the thin neck stretching out from the turn-down collar, whom everyone had forgotten, gazed at Pierre with even greater and more rapturous joy. Every word of Pierre's burned into his heart, and with a nervous movement of his fingers he unconsciously broke the sealing wax and quill-pens his hands came upon on his uncle's table. "'It is not at all what you suppose, but that is what the German Tugendbund was, and what I am proposing.' No, my friend, the Tugendbund is all very well for the sausage-eaters, but I don't understand it and can't even pronounce it," interposed Anisov in a loud and resolute voice. I agree that everything here is rotten and horrible, but the Tugendbund I don't understand. If we're not satisfied, let us have a bunt of our own. That's all right. Je suis votre homme. I'm your man." Pierre smiled. Natasha began to laugh, but Nicholas knitted his brow still more, 
and began proving to Pierre that there was no prospect of any great change, and that all the danger he spoke of existed only in his imagination. Pierre maintained the contrary, and as his mental faculties were greater and more resourceful, Nicholas felt himself cornered. This made him still angrier, for he was fully convinced, not by reasoning, but by something within him stronger than reason, of the justice of his opinion. "'I will tell you this,' he said, rising and trying with nervously twitching fingers to prop up his pipe in a corner, but finally abandoning the attempt. "'I can't prove it to you. You say that everything here is rotten and that an overthrow is coming. I don't see it. But you also say that our oath of allegiance is a conditional matter, and to that I reply, You are my best friend, as you know, but if you formed a secret society and began working against the government, be it what it may, I know it is my duty to obey the government. And if Arakcheyev ordered me to lead a squadron against you and cut you down, I should not hesitate an instant, but should do it. And you may argue about that as you like. An awkward silence followed these words. Natasha was the first to speak, defending her husband and attacking her brother. Her defense was weak and inapt, but she attained her object. The conversation was resumed, and no longer in the unpleasantly hostile tone of Nicholas's last remark. When they all got up to go in to supper, little Nicholas Bolkonsky went up to Pierre, pale and with shining, radiant eyes. "'Uncle Pierre, you—' "'No. If Papa were alive, would he agree with you?' he asked. And Pierre suddenly realized what a special, independent, complex and powerful process of thought and feeling must have been going on in this boy during that conversation. And remembering all he had said, he regretted that the lad should have heard him. He had, however, to give him an answer. "'Yes, I think so.' he said reluctantly, and left the study. The lad looked down, and seemed now for the first time to notice what he had done to the things on the table. He flushed and went up to Nicholas. "'Uncle, forgive me. I did that... unintentionally,' he said, pointing to the broken ceiling-wax and pens. Nicholas started angrily. "'All right, all right,' he said, throwing the bits under the table and, evidently suppressing his vexation with difficulty, he turned away from the boy. "'You ought not to have been here at all,' he said. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 14Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter 15 The conversation at supper was not about politics or societies, but turned upon the subject Nicholas liked best, recollections of 1812. Denisov started these, and Pierre was particularly agreeable and amusing about them. The family separated on the most friendly terms. After supper, Nicholas, having undressed in his study and given instructions to the steward who had been waiting for him, went to the bedroom in his dressing-gown, where he found his wife still at her table writing. "'What are you writing, Mary?' Nicholas asked. Countess Mary blushed. 
she was afraid that what she was writing would not be understood or approved by her husband. She had wanted to conceal what she was writing from him, but at the same time was glad he had surprised her at it, and that she would now have to tell him. "'A diary, Nicholas,' she replied, handing him a blue exercise-book filled with her firm, bold writing. "'A diary?' Nicholas repeated with a shade of irony, and he took up the book. It was in French. December 4. Today, when Andrusha, her eldest boy, woke up, he did not wish to dress and Mademoiselle Louise sent for me. He was naughty and obstinate. I tried threats, but he only grew angrier. Then I took the matter in hand. I left him alone and began with nurse's help to get the other children up, telling him that I did not love him. For a long time he was silent, as if astonished. Then he jumped out of bed, ran to me in his shirt, and sobbed so that I could not calm him for a long time. It was plain that what troubled him most was that he had grieved me. Afterwards, in the evening, when I gave him his ticket, he again began crying piteously and kissing me. One can do anything with him by tenderness. "'What is a ticket?' Nicholas inquired. I have begun giving the elder ones marks every evening, showing how they have behaved." Nicholas looked into the radiant eyes that were gazing at him, and continued to turn over the pages and read. In the diary was set down everything in the children's lives that seemed noteworthy to their mother as showing their characters, or suggesting general reflections on educational methods. They were, for the most part, quite insignificant trifles but did not seem so to the mother or to the father either, now that he read this diary about his children for the first time. Under the date five was entered, Mitya was naughty at table. Papa said he was to have no pudding. He had none, but looked so unhappily and greedily at the others while they were eating. I think that punishment by depriving children of sweets only develops their greediness. Must tell Nicholas this. Nicholas put down the book and looked at his wife. The radiant eyes gazed at him questioningly. Would he approve or disapprove of her diary? There could be no doubt not only of his approval, but also of his admiration for his wife. Perhaps it need not be done so pedantically, thought Nicholas, or even done at all, but this untiring, continual spiritual effort of which the sole aim was the children's moral welfare delighted him. Had Nicholas been able to analyze his feelings, he would have found that his steady, tender, and proud love of his wife rested on his feeling of wonder at her spirituality and at the lofty moral world, almost beyond his reach in which she had her being. He was proud of her intelligence and goodness, recognized his own insignificance beside her in the spiritual world and rejoiced all the more that she with such a soul not only belonged to him but was part of himself. "'I quite, quite approve, my dearest,' said he with a significant look, and after a short pause he added, "'And I behaved badly today. You weren't in the study. We began disputing, Pierre and I, and I lost my temper. But he is impossible. Such a child!' I don't know what would become of him if Natasha didn't keep him in hand. Have you any idea why he went to Petersburg? They have formed—yes, I know," said Countess Mary. Natasha told me. Well, then, you know, 
Nicholas went on, growing hot at the mere recollection of their discussion. He wanted to convince me that it is every honest man's duty to go against the government, and that the oath of allegiance and duty—I am sorry you weren't there. They all fell on me, Denisov and Natasha. Natasha is absurd. How she rules over him! And yet there need only be a discussion, and she has no words of her own, but only repeats his sayings," added Nicholas, yielding to that irresistible inclination which tempts us to judge those nearest and dearest to us. He forgot that what he was saying about Natasha could have been applied word for word to himself in relation to his wife. "'Yes, I have noticed that,' said Countess Mary. When I told him that duty and the oath were above everything, he started proving goodness knows what. A pity you were not there. What would you have said? As I see it, you are quite right, and I told Natasha so. Pierre says everybody is suffering, tortured, and being corrupted, and that it is our duty to help our neighbor. Of course he is right there," said Countess Mary. But he forgets that we have other duties nearer to us, duties indicated to us by God Himself, and that, though we might expose ourselves to risks, we must not risk our children. "'Yes, that's it! That's just what I said to him,' put in Nicholas, who fancied he really had said it. But they insisted on their own view—love of one's neighbor and Christianity, and all this in the presence of young Nicholas, who had gone into my study and broke all my things. "'Ah, Nicholas, do you know I am often troubled about little Nicholas?' said Countess Mary. "'He is such an exceptional boy. I am afraid I neglect him in favor of my own. We all have children and relations, while he has no one. He is constantly alone with his thoughts.' "'Well, I don't think you need reproach yourself on his account. All that the fondest mother could do for her son you have done and are doing for him, and of course I am glad of it. He is a fine lad, a fine lad. This evening he listened to Pierre in a sort of trance, and fancy, as we were going into supper I looked and he had broken everything on my table to bits, and he told me of it himself at once. I never knew him to tell an untruth. A fine lad, a fine lad, repeated Nicholas who at heart was not fond of Nicholas Bolkonsky, but was always anxious to recognize that he was a fine lad. "'Still, I am not the same as his own mother,' said Countess Mary. "'I feel I am not the same, and it troubles me. A wonderful boy, but I am dreadfully afraid for him. It would be good for him to have a companions.' "'Well, it won't be for long. Next summer I'll take him to Petersburg.' said Nicholas. "'Yes, Pierre always was a dreamer, and always will be,' he continued, returning to the talk in the study which had evidently disturbed him. "'Well, what business is it of mine what goes on there, whether Arakcheyev is bad and all that? What business was it of mine when I married and was so deep in debt that I was threatened with prison, and had a mother who could not see or understand it?' And then there are you and the children and our affairs. Is it for my own pleasure that I am at the farm or in the office from morning to night? No, but I know I must work to comfort my mother, 
to repay you and not to leave the children such beggars as I was." Countess Mary wanted to tell him that man does not live by bread alone, and that he attached too much importance to these matters. But she knew she must not say this, and that it would be useless to do so. She only took his hand and kissed it. He took this as a sign of approval and a confirmation of his thoughts, and after a few minutes' reflection continued to think aloud. "'You know, Mary, today Elias Mitrofanitch—this was his overseer—came back from the Atambov estate and told me they are already offering eighty thousand roubles for the forest.' and with an eager face Nicholas began to speak of the possibility of repurchasing Otradno before long, and added, "'Another ten years of life, and I shall leave the children in an excellent position.'" Countess Mary listened to her husband and understood all that he told her. She knew that when he thought aloud in this way he would sometimes ask her what he had been saying, and be vexed if he noticed that she had been thinking about something else but she had to force herself to attend, for what he was saying did not interest her at all. She looked at him and did not think, but felt about something different. She felt a submissive tender love for this man, who would never understand all that she understood, and this seemed to make her love for him still stronger, and added a touch of passionate tenderness. Besides this feeling which absorbed her altogether and hindered her from following the details of her husband's plans, thoughts that had no connection with what he was saying flitted through her mind. She thought of her nephew. Her husband's account of the boy's agitation while Pierre was speaking struck her forcibly, and various traits of his gentle, sensitive character recurred to her mind. And while thinking of her nephew, she thought also of her own children. She did not compare them with him, but compared her feeling for them with her feeling for him, and felt with regret that there was something lacking in her feeling for young Nicholas. Sometimes it seemed to her that this difference arose from the difference in their ages, but she felt herself to blame toward him and promised in her heart to do better and to accomplish the impossible, in this life to love her husband, her children, little Nicholas, and all her neighbors, as Christ loved mankind. Countess Mary's soul always strove toward the infinite, the eternal, and the absolute, and could therefore never be at peace. A stern expression of the lofty, secret suffering of a soul burdened by the body appeared on her face. Nicholas gazed at her. Oh, God! What will become of us if she dies, as I always fear when her face is like that?" thought he, and placing himself before the icon, he began to say his evening prayers. End of First Epilogue Chapter 15《First Epilogue Chapter 16 Of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Epilogue, Chapter 16 Natasha and Pierre, left alone, also began to talk as only a husband and wife can talk, that is, with extraordinary clearness and rapidity, understanding and expressing each other's thoughts in ways contrary to all rules of logic, without premises, deductions, or conclusions, and in a quite peculiar way. 
Natasha was so used to this kind of talk with her husband that for her it was the surest sign of something being wrong between them if Pierre followed a line of logical reasoning. When he began proving anything, or talking argumentatively and calmly, and she, led on by his example, began to do the same, she knew that they were on the verge of a quarrel. From the moment they were alone, and Natasha came up to him with wide-open, happy eyes, and quickly seizing his head pressed it to her bosom, saying, "'Now you're all mine, mine. You won't escape.' From that moment this conversation began, contrary to all the laws of logic and contrary to them because quite different subjects were talked about at one and the same time. This simultaneous discussion of many topics did not prevent a clear understanding, but on the contrary was the surest sign that they fully understood one another. Just as in a dream, when all is uncertain, unreasoning, and contradictory, except the feeling that guides the dream, so in this intercourse, contrary to all laws of reason, the words themselves were not consecutive and clear, but only the feeling that prompted them. Natasha spoke to Pierre about her brother's life and doings, of how she had suffered and lacked life during his own absence, and of how she was fonder than ever of Mary, and how Mary was in every way better than herself. In saying this, Natasha was sincere in acknowledging Mary's superiority, but at the same time, by saying it, she made a demand on Pierre that he should, all the same, prefer her to Mary and to all other women, and that now, especially after having seen many women in Petersburg, he should tell her so afresh. Pierre, answering Natasha's words, told her how intolerable it had been for him to meet ladies at dinners and balls in Petersburg. "'I have quite lost the knack of talking to ladies,' he said. "'It was simply dull. Besides, I was very busy.' Natasha looked intently at him and went on. "'Mary is so splendid,' she said. "'How she understands children!' It is as if she saw straight into their souls. Yesterday, for instance, Mitya was naughty. How like his father he is!" Pierre interjected. Natasha knew why he mentioned Mitya's likeness to Nicholas. The recollection of his dispute with his brother-in-law was unpleasant, and he wanted to know what Natasha thought of it. "'Nicholas has the weakness of never agreeing with anything not generally accepted but I understand that you value what opens up a fresh line," said she, repeating words Pierre had once uttered. No, the chief point is that to Nicholas ideas and discussions are an amusement, almost a pastime," said Pierre. For instance, he is collecting a library and has made it a rule not to buy a new book till he has read what he had already bought, Sismondi and Rousseau and Montesquieu," he added with a smile. You know how much I—' He began to soften down what he had said, but Natasha interrupted him to show that this was unnecessary. "'So you say ideas are an amusement to him?' "'Yes, and for me nothing else is serious. All the time in Petersburg I saw everyone as in a dream. When I am taken up by a thought, all else is mere amusement.' "'Ah, I'm so sorry I wasn't there when you met the children.' said Natasha. Which was most delighted? Lisa, I'm sure. Yes, Pierre replied, and went on with what was in his mind. Nicholas says we ought not to think, 
but I can't help it. Besides, when I was in Petersburg, I felt, I can say this to you, that the whole affair would go to pieces without me. Everyone was pulling his own way. But I succeeded in uniting them all. And then my idea so clear and simple. You see, I don't say that we ought to oppose this and that. We may be mistaken. What I say is, join hands, you who love the right, and let there be but one banner, that of active virtue. Prince Sergei is a fine fellow and clever. Natasha would have had no doubt as to the greatness of Pierre's idea, but one thing disconcerted her. Can a man so important and necessary to society be also my husband? How did this happen? She wished to express this doubt to him. Now, who could decide whether he is really cleverer than all the others? She asked herself, and passed in review all those whom Pierre most respected. Judging by what he had said, there was no one he had respected so highly as Platon Karatayev. Do you know what I am thinking about? she asked. About Platon Karatayev. Would he have approved of you now, do you think? Pierre was not at all surprised at this question. He understood his wife's line of thought. Platon Karatayev? he repeated and pondered evidently sincerely trying to imagine Karatayev's opinion on the subject. He would not have understood. Yet perhaps he would. "'I love you awfully,' Natasha suddenly said. "'Awfully, awfully!' "'No, he would not have approved,' said Pierre after reflection. "'What he would have approved of is our family life.' He was always so anxious to find seemliness, happiness, and peace in everything, and I should have been proud to let him see us. There, now, you talk of my absence, but you wouldn't believe what a special feeling I have for you after a separation. Yes, I should think, Natasha began. No, it's not that. I never leave off loving you, and one couldn't love more, but this is something special. Yes. Of course. He did not finish, because their eyes meeting said the rest. What nonsense it is, Natasha suddenly exclaimed, about honeymoons, and that the greatest happiness is at first. On the contrary, now is the best of all. If only you did not go away. Do you remember how we quarreled? And it was always my fault, always mine. And what we quarreled about? I don't even remember." "'Always about the same thing,' said Pierre with a smile. "'Jella, don't say it. I can't bear it!' Natasha cried, and her eyes glittered coldly and vindictively. "'Did you see her?' she added after a pause. "'No, and if I had, I shouldn't have recognized her.' They were silent for a while. "'Oh, do you know?' While you were talking in the study, I was looking at you," Natasha began, evidently anxious to disperse the cloud that had come over them. "'You are as like him as two peas, like the boy,' she met her little son. "'Oh, it's time to go to him. The milk's come. But I'm sorry to leave you.' They were silent for a few seconds. Then suddenly, turning to one another at the same time, they both began to speak. Pierre began with self-satisfaction and enthusiasm, 
Natasha with a quiet happy smile. Having interrupted one another, they both stopped to let the other continue. "'No, what did you say? Go on, go on.' "'No, you go on. I was talking nonsense,' said Natasha. Pierre finished what he had begun. It was the sequel to his complacent reflections on his success in Petersburg. At that moment it seemed to him that he was chosen to give a new direction to the whole of Russian society and to the whole world. I only wish to say that ideas that have great results are always simple ones. My whole idea is that, if vicious people are united and constitute a power, then honest folk must do the same. Now that's simple enough." Yes. And what were you going to say? I. Only nonsense. But all the same. Oh, nothing, only a trifle," said Natasha, smiling still more brightly. I only wanted to tell you about Petya. Today Nurse was coming to take him from me, and he laughed, shut his eyes, and clung to me. I'm sure he thought he was hiding. Awfully sweet. There now, he's crying. Well, good-bye," and she left the room. Meanwhile, downstairs in young Nicholas Bolkonsky's bedroom, a little lamp was burning as usual. The boy was afraid of the dark, and they could not cure him of it. Salle slept propped up on four pillows, and his Roman nose emitted sounds of rhythmic snoring. Little Nicholas, who had just waked up in a cold perspiration, sat up in bed and gazed before him with wide-open eyes. He had awaked from a terrible dream. He had dreamed that he and Uncle Pierre, wearing helmets such as were depicted in his Plutarch, were leading a huge army. The army was made up of white slanting lines that filled the air, like the cobwebs that float about in autumn and which de Salle called Les Filles de la Vierge. In front was glory, which was similar to those threads but rather thicker. He and Pierre were borne along lightly and joyously, nearer and nearer to their goal. Suddenly the threads that moved them began to slacken and become entangled, and it grew difficult to move. And Uncle Nicholas stood before them in a stern and threatening attitude. "'Have you done this?' he said, pointing to some broken sealing-wax and pens. "'I loved you, but I have orders from Erechev, and will kill the first of you who moves forward.' Little Nicholas turned to look at Pierre, but Pierre was no longer there. In his place was his father, Prince Andrew. And his father had neither shape nor form, but he existed. And when little Nicholas perceived him, he grew faint with love. He felt himself powerless, limp, and formless. His father caressed and pitied him. But Uncle Nicholas came nearer and nearer to them. Terror seized young Nicholas, and he awoke. My father, he thought. Though there were two good portraits of Prince Andrew in the house, Nicholas never imagined him in human form. "'My father has been with me and caressed me. He approved of me and of Uncle Pierre. Whatever he may tell me, I will do it. Musius Scavola burned his hand. Why should not the same sort of thing happen to me? I know they want me to learn, and I will learn.' But some day I shall have finished learning, and then I will do something. I only pray God that something may happen to me such as happened to Plutarch's men, and I will act as they did. I will do better. Everyone shall know me, love me, and be delighted with me. 
and suddenly his bosom heaved with sobs and he began to cry. "'Are you ill?' he heard Desalle's voice asking. "'No,' answered Nicholas, and lay back on his pillow. "'He is good and kind, and I am fond of him,' he thought of Desalle. "'But Uncle Pierre! Oh, what a wonderful man he is! And my father? Oh, father, father! Yes, I will do something with which even he would be satisfied. End of First Epilogue, Chapter 16《Second Epilogue, Chapter 1 Of War and Peace, Volume 4 by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Second Epilogue, Chapter 1 History is the life of nations and of humanity. To seize and put into words, to describe directly the life of humanity or even of a single nation, appears impossible. The ancient historians all employed one and the same method to describe and seize the apparent elusive, the life of a people. They described the activity of individuals who ruled the people, and regarded the activity of those men as representing the activity of the whole nation. The question, how did individuals make nations act as they wished, and by what was the will of these individuals themselves guided? the ancients met by recognizing a divinity which subjected the nations to the will of a chosen man, and guided the will of that chosen man so as to accomplish ends that were predestined. For the ancients these questions were solved by a belief in the direct participation of the deity in human affairs. Modern history, in theory, rejects both these principles. It would seem that having rejected the belief of the ancients in man's subjection to the deity, and in a predetermined aim toward which nations are led, modern history should study not the manifestations of power, but the causes that produce it. But modern history has not done this. Having, in theory, rejected the view held by the ancients, it still follows them in practice. Instead of men endowed with divine authority and directly guided by the will of God, modern history has given us either heroes endowed with extraordinary superhuman capacities, or simply men of various kinds, from monarchs to journalists who lead the masses. Instead of the formerly divinely appointed aims of the Jewish, Greek, or Roman nations, which ancient historians regarded as representing the progress of humanity, Modern history has postulated its own aims, the welfare of the French, German, or English people, or, in its highest abstraction, the welfare and civilization of humanity in general, by which is usually meant that of the peoples occupying a small northwesterly portion of a large continent. Modern history has rejected the beliefs of the ancients without replacing them by a new conception and the logic of the situation has obliged the historians, after they had apparently rejected the divine authority of the kings and the fate of the ancients, to reach the same conclusion by another road, that is, to recognize, one, nations guided by individual men, and, two, the existence of a known aim to which these nations and humanity at large are tending. At the basis of the works of all the modern historians from Gibbon to Buckle, 
despite their seeming disagreements and the apparent novelty of their outlooks, lie those two old unavoidable assumptions. In the first place, the historian describes the activity of individuals who, in his opinion, have directed humanity, one historian considers only monarchs, generals, and ministers as being such men, while another includes also orators, learned men, reformers, philosophers, and poets. Secondly, it is assumed that the goal toward which humanity is being led is known to the historians. To one of them this goal is the greatness of the Roman, Spanish, or French realm. To another it is liberty, equality, and a certain kind of civilization of a small corner of the world called Europe. In 1789 a ferment arises in Paris. It grows, spreads, and is expressed by a movement of peoples from west to east. Several times it moves eastward and collides with a counter-movement from the east westward. In 1812 it reaches its extreme limit, Moscow, and then, with remarkable symmetry, a counter-movement occurs from east to west, attracting to it, as the first movement had done, the nations of Middle Europe. The counter-movement reaches the starting point of the first movement in the west, Paris, and subsides. During that twenty-year period an immense number of fields were left untilled, houses were burned, trade changed its direction, millions of men migrated, were impoverished, or were enriched, and millions of Christian men professing the law of love of their fellows slew one another. What does all this mean? Why did it happen? What made those people burn houses and slay their fellow-men? What were the causes of these events? What force made men act so? These are the instinctive, plain, and most legitimate questions humanity asks itself when it encounters the monuments and tradition of that period. For a reply to these questions, the common sense of mankind turns to the science of history, whose aim is to enable nations and humanity to know themselves. If history had retained the conception of the ancients, it would have said that God, to reward or punish his people, gave Napoleon power and directed his will to the fulfillment of the divine ends, and that reply would have been clear and complete. One might believe or disbelieve in the divine significance of Napoleon, but for anyone believing in it there would have been nothing unintelligible in the history of that period, nor would there have been any contradictions. But modern history cannot give that reply. Science does not admit the conception of the ancients as to the direct participation of the deity in human affairs, and therefore history ought to give other answers. Modern history, replying to these questions, says, You want to know what this movement means, what caused it, and what force produced these events? Then listen. Louis the Fourteenth was a very proud and self-confident man. He had such and such mistresses, and such and such ministers, and he ruled France badly. His descendants were weak men, and they too ruled France badly. And they had such and such favorites, and such and such mistresses. Moreover, certain men wrote some books at that time. At the end of the eighteenth century there were a couple of dozen men in Paris who began to talk about all men being free and equal. This caused people all over France to begin to slash and drown one another. They killed the king and many other people. 
At that time there was in France a man of genius, Napoleon. He conquered everybody everywhere, that is, he killed many people because he was a great genius. And for some reason he went to kill Africans, and killed them so well and was so cunning and wise that when he returned to France he ordered everybody to obey him, and they all obeyed him. Having become an emperor, he again went out to kill people in Italy, Austria, and Prussia. And there, too, he killed a great many. In Russia there was an emperor, Alexander, who decided to restore order in Europe and therefore fought against Napoleon. In 1807 he suddenly made friends with him, but in 1811 they again quarreled and again began killing many people. Napoleon led six hundred thousand men into Russia and captured Moscow. Then he suddenly ran away from Moscow, and the Emperor Alexander, helped by the advice of Stein and others, united Europe to arm against the disturber of its peace. All Napoleon's allies suddenly became his enemies, and their forces advanced against the fresh forces he raised. The Allies defeated Napoleon, entered Paris, forced Napoleon to abdicate, and sent him to the island of Elba, not depriving him of the title of Emperor, and showing him every respect, though five years before and one year later they all regarded him as an outlaw and a brigand. Then Louis the Eighteenth who till then had been the laughing-stock both of the French and the Allies, began to reign. And Napoleon, shedding tears before his old guards, renounced the throne and went into exile. Then the skillful statesmen and diplomatists, especially Talleyrand, who managed to sit down in a particular chair before anyone else and thereby extended the frontiers of France, talked in Vienna and by these conversations made the nations happy or unhappy. Suddenly the diplomatists and monarchs nearly quarrelled, and were on the point of again ordering their armies to kill one another, but just then Napoleon arrived in France with a battalion, and the French, who had been hating him, immediately all submitted to him. But the allied monarchs were angry at this, and went to fight the French once more and they defeated the genius Napoleon, and suddenly recognizing him as a brigand, sent him to the island of St. Helena. And the exile, separated from the beloved France so dear to his heart, died a lingering death on that rock, and bequeathed his great deeds to posterity. But in Europe a reaction occurred, and the sovereigns once again all began to oppress their subjects. It would be a mistake to think that this is ironic a caricature of the historical accounts. On the contrary, it is a very mild expression of the contradictory replies, not meeting the questions, which all the historians give, from the compilers of memoirs and the histories of separate states, to the writers of general histories and the new histories of the culture of that period. The strangeness and absurdity of these replies arise from the fact that modern history, like a deaf man, answers questions no one has asked. If the purpose of history be to give a description of the movement of humanity and of the peoples, the first question, in the absence of a reply to which all the rest will be incomprehensible, is, what is the power that moves peoples? To this modern history laboriously replies either that Napoleon was a great genius, or that Louis the Fourteenth was very proud, or that certain writers wrote certain books. All that may be so, 
and mankind is ready to agree with it, but it is not what was asked. All that would be interesting if we recognized a divine power based on itself, and always consistently directing its nations through Napoleons, Louis, and writers, but we do not acknowledge such a power, and therefore, before speaking about Napoleons, Louis, and authors, we ought to be shown the connection existing between these men and the movement of the nations. If instead of a divine power some other force has appeared, it should be explained in what this new force consists, for the whole interest of history lies precisely in that force. History seems to assume that this force is self-evident and known to everyone. But in spite of every desire to regard it as known, anyone reading many historical works cannot help doubting whether this new force, so variously understood by the historians themselves, is really quite well known to everybody. End of Second Epilogue, Chapter 1「Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.